The reading this morning is from Mark 10, verses 17 to 31. Mark 10, 17 to 31. And it's entitled, The Rich and the Kingdom of God. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in this age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Morning, everyone. Morning to guys at home, including my wife, who is not well. And the rules are, if you're not well, stay home. She's a teacher, for those of you who don't know, and some of the kids in the class apparently got a head cold or something, so now she's got a terrible head cold, and she's booked to go on a flight next Saturday to go to Sydney. Maybe. So we've been praying. Please pray with us. Pray that, you know, she gets better. But then she's got to answer questions when she gets down to Sydney of where have you been? Have you been in Brisbane City? Well, we live in Brisbane City. So, have you been in contact with COVID and all of that sort of stuff? Anyway, so she could end up in quarantine in Sydney. Two weeks freedom. <laughs> for her. <laughs> if you're here for the first time, then welcome for you. We're glad you're here. If you're back for the first time because you've been away, then welcome for you as well. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can be together. Um, Lord, Place your healing hand, well, certainly upon Rhonda, but upon all of us. 
And most of all this morning, Lord, take your word and shine the truth of your word into our minds and hearts. Examine us. Teach us. Remind us, Lord, of something that perhaps we knew and just need reminding of or show us something new that we haven't seen before. Whatever you choose to do, Lord, help us to pay attention and to listen to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing our series, and we will up until Easter, on people who encountered Jesus and who were impacted by it. Last week we had a look at Judas. He was a man who certainly encountered Jesus and hung around with him for three, three and a bit years, but was not impacted in his life. In fact, the opposite. He rejected Jesus, betrayed him. Uh, this morning we're looking at another individual who likewise came running to the Lord Jesus. This, what we commonly refer to as the rich young ruler. No gospel calls him the rich young ruler, but if it's recorded for us three times in Matthew, in Mark and in Luke, and if God records something three times, then he really does want us to get the point, doesn't he? So it's when you read Matthew that he'll be called um, wealthy but also young, something like that. In Mark he's wealthy and I think it's young, isn't it? or rich and young, I think, and in Luke, he's a ruler. When you put all three stories together, you get that he is a rich, young ruler. So we're going to have a look at him in a moment. We're going to work our way through. I apologise that you don't have a PowerPoint. I did a PowerPoint. There's my PowerPoint. But see how it's lovely colours? Ah, oh, you can't see it when we project it onto the screen. Which is really sad because it's really pretty. Anyway, so I'm going to try and follow what you would have been able to see. Paul, can you put the scriptures up, please, for people to be able to follow it? And we'll jump into it in just a second. There was a salesman in the southern states of America who was travelling around and he came to a house and there was a boy sitting on the front porch, on the front veranda, <coughs> dangling, dangling his legs over the side. Salesman said to him, son, is your mum home? He said, yes, she is. So he goes to the door, he knocks on the door. There's no answer. Son, you sure your son's home? Yes, she is. Huh. So he knocks again. And then he thinks, well, she must be out the back. So he knocks louder. Bang, bang, bang. That loud noise then brings a dog out from underneath the veranda who comes up and starts smelling the, around the feet and shins of the salesman. He said, son, does your dog bite? He said, no, sir, my dog doesn't bite. He said, he reached down to pat the little dog and the dog snarled at him and then snapped at him and nearly bit him. He said, son, you said... Your dog doesn't bite and you said your mum was home. He said, sir, this is not my dog and this is not my house. <laughs> He's asking the right questions to the wrong person. The rich young ruler comes and he's asking the right questions to the right person. But he doesn't get the answer that he likes. In verse 17, there are several things about this man that are commendable to us. He, certainly God was at work in his life and heart because he was a ruler. We don't know what a ruler of, but I'm assuming ruler of a synagogue or something like that. He's young, so he's progressed well in life. He's done well. So he has status, he has wealth, and he has youth on his side. <clears throat> but having, as he says in, this, in the passage, as he has obeyed the Ten Commandments all the days of his life since he was a young boy, since his bar mitzvah, of course, he's got a misunderstanding of that, but it's indicating that he is a religious person. 
and pretty moral, pretty good at it. He didn't get his wealth from immoral, inappropriate means. And here is this young guy who has done all of that, but there's still something missing. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, he tells us, he asks Jesus, what am I lacking? What's not there? So the question is, what do I need to do in order to have eternal life? It's commendable that he ran to the Lord Jesus. In verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to be saved? Or what must I do to have eternal life? <clears throat> he ran up to Jesus. Here is a, a young guy, but with status. And people of status in those world, as we often say in that culture, don't run. But he's running. By this stage, the word is already out that the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, in fact, are after Jesus. They want to arrest him. He's a teacher not to be respected. He's rejected. But here is this young man, contrary to that information, runs up to Jesus and calls him a good teacher. Again, misunderstanding some things, but at least he's not... At least he's contrasting. You're not a teacher to be rejected. You're a teacher to be listened to. That's commendable. He kneels before Jesus. That's showing humility and certainly respect. So he comes earnestly, humbly, maybe with a sense of urgency. Maybe that's why he was running. Jesus was on his way going to Jerusalem. And certainly respectfully, excuse me, what do I still lack? And I should point out too, he did all of this publicly. Nicodemus came at night and asked these questions. This guy does it publicly. There's a sense of desperation, something in him. And he thinks Jesus is the one who can give it to him. Good teacher. Well, there's a mistake. We'll talk about that in just a second. His misunderstanding as Jesus corrects him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You can read that one of two ways. Is he misunderstanding that there is something I have to do, something significant in order for me to be certain that I have eternal life, that I'll enter the kingdom of heaven? Is that what he's thinking? Or is it more just general, like somebody comes up to him and says, what have you got to do to get right with God? Not emphasising what one thing must I do, but what do, how do, what do I need to do in order to be right with God? How would you answer that question? If somebody came up to you and said, what must I do to have eternal life? What would you say? Most of us would say, repent, believe on the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. We have, and we have biblical uh, support for that. In John chapter 6, some people came to Jesus and they said, what have we got to do to do the works of God? What does God want us to do? And Jesus says, God wants you to believe in the one that he has sent. Believe. Or the Philippian jailer. You know, don't harm yourself. What have I got to do to have eternal life? Same question. Believe in the Lord Jesus, Paul says, you and your household. So there's good biblical evidence for it. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't give a simplistic answer. Jesus perceiving something in this man, doesn't he? So we go down to verse 18. Question 1. Why do you call me good? Hey, Paul, how are you? Good? Yep. No, you're not. None is good. 
But we talk like that, don't we? We use the word good just to mean I'm well. You know, I'm doing okay. We don't mean I'm morally correct, do we? (laughs) And so you even see, some of you people do it. If somebody says to you, how are you? And they say, good, and you say, none is good, no, not one. Oh, I'm well. We correct ourselves. Now, theologically, that's probably a sensible thing to do. But in terms of social manners and stuff, it would be a little bit irritating and annoying, wouldn't it? It's a bit like when people go to drink a, um, a glass of water and you say to them, if you drink that, you'll thirst again. But I can tell you about water, life, drink that doesn't go on forever. You could be annoying with biblical truth, can't you? Well, that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not saying, he's probing. Why do you call me good? Because there is, I was going to say none. I'll say very little. I'm not aware of any. Literature in the first century or the first early centuries of Jewish culture where they would use that descriptor, that we are good. It's not a Jewish expression. So what's behind this rich young mural saying it's Jesus? And he doesn't mean good outwardly, you look good, you're well behaved. He doesn't mean that. He means intrinsically in your heart, coming from the core of your being, you are morally good. That's what he's saying to Jesus, good teacher. Your teaching's coming out of who you are. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Now, Jesus is not assuming or implying that he's not good. But he's saying to the man, we humans are not good, only God is good. What are you saying to me? Who do you think I am? He's pushing him. Why do you call me good, Jesus says. No one is good except God. That's worth thinking about for quite a while, in fact. No one is good. We wrestle with that in our society because most people I know think they are good. Certainly most people, I would assume, I would hazard a guess, in our society think they are good good and just like this man similar attitude i haven't broken the ten commandments and that just really reveals that you don't really understand the ten commandments but that's where people are at i haven't murdered anybody i haven't done this i haven't done that so therefore by definition i am good i'm not as bad as him now what jesus is teaching us and what the new testament teaches us emphatically is that none of us are good there are not degrees of goodness even though that's how we use it to describe one another oh he's a a good person He's a good bloke. That's English. Not theologically correct when we say that. There are degrees of badness. None of us are good. We're not all as bad as others or other people, but there are degrees of badness. But we are all bad. Does that make sense? We're all sinners. We're all broken. We've all stepped over the line. None of us are probably even fully aware of how really bad we are. We think we're better than we really are. And God slowly, by the Holy Spirit, convicting us and sanctifying us, will slowly reveal parts to us of our brokenness and our fallenness and and so on. If you really want to know what you're like, 
have somebody interview your kids. It's where the truth will come out because they see the real you at home. And the reality is, but by the grace of God, there go I. Only God is good. We are not good. Let's grab a hold of that truth. And until you are aware of and acknowledge that you are not good, certainly compared to God and his standards, that you are not good, then you will not come to God to be forgiven. That's why it's an important point to grasp. Jesus says, no one is good except God. Verse 19, you know the commandments. And Jesus quotes the second half. There are two tablets, two halves to the Ten Commandments. Jesus quotes the second half. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. He adds, you shall not defraud. And he says, and honour your father and mother. All three of the Gospels record that. The second half, the Ten Commandments. They're made very slightly. But nonetheless, it's the horizontal relationships. You know that. You know the commandments. To which he surprisingly says... And he's probably disappointed that Jesus has answered that way. I've done all of those things all my life. I'm still lacking something. What is it? Well, then the scripture says that Jesus looked at him. Verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, Peter, who was telling this story to Mark, noticed that. He noticed how Jesus was looking at this rich young ruler. Because later on in Peter's life, not many... A week or so after this, Peter would receive that same look. It's in the garden of Caiaphas' house where Jesus is up on the balcony and he's being on trial. And Peter is down in the courtyard warming his hands at a charcoal fire and a servant girl is asking him questions and he denies knowing Jesus. And when it happens the third time, Luke tells us, the only one who does, but Luke tells us that Jesus then turned... And looked straight at Peter, looked at him, eye contact. And then Peter was heart smitten. The rooster crows and he runs out, exposed and aware. That's the look. Jesus looked at this rich young ruler and loved him. Here is a religious man seeking God, loved. good point to note God is a God who is for us he loves us he cares for us wants only the best thing for us Jesus looked at him probing examination loving him one thing you lack that'd be nice to hear wouldn't it one thing you lack there's only one thing in your life that you lack of all of the things that we lack one thing you lack and of course, what Jesus is saying is the most important thing for you to do is this. Go, sell everything that you have, give it away to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come, follow me. Now, people jump up and down and bend over backwards and say, Jesus never says this to anybody else, and he doesn't. Is Jesus saying this to us? And we say, no, he's not. What Jesus is saying to us is what Jesus did say to that young man. Between you and God, there is something. There is an idol. You think you've kept the second half of the law. You haven't broken it. That's not true, but you don't fully understand it. You don't have to murder somebody. You just have to be angry with them in your heart. That breaks the command. You don't have to commit physical adultery. You just have to have a lost in your heart after another 
person's wife or husband or whatever, and you've broken a commandment, and so on and so on. Jesus does that in the Sermon on the Mount. One thing you lack, you don't understand that, but you haven't even obeyed the first half. You have another God besides God. You have an idol. There's something between you and God. And Jesus is saying, remove the idol. Get rid of it. Put God first in your life. Then come, follow me, and you will receive eternal life. What lies between you and God? What's hungering you? What idol do you need to get rid of? Is God first in your life? The passage goes on to say, um, at this the man's face fell and he went away sad. Why? Because he had great wealth. He wanted eternal life. He came to Jesus to get it. Um, and he ends up being disappointed, not just with the answer, but with the cost of it. Interestingly, he doesn't argue or disagree with Jesus. If that's what's required, that's too much. And he walked away. He knew there was eternal life to be had. He wanted it, but not at that cost. He exchanged eternal life for present comfort. He put now is more important than then. He took the short view and he walked away and Jesus let him walk away as he lets us make our decisions and to live with the consequences, whatever they happen to be. Jesus then sees this as a teaching opportunity to the others, the guys walking away. Jesus looked around to the crowd that is following him, his disciples, but others who were there as well, and undoubtedly other wealthy people. And Jesus said, verse 23, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words, shocked, astonished. That can't be right. This is new information for them. They'd never heard it. They don't think this way. Nobody thought this way in the, in the first century. People still think the way they think, even today. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is it hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus didn't say it was difficult. He's saying it's hard. In fact, he'll go on to say it's impossible. We'll get to that in a minute. Remember Jesus had said, what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world but lose their own soul in the process? That's what he's talking about. That's what this young guy did. How hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Well, because people are wealthy more often than not, unless they've inherited it and haven't really worked for it. But most people who have wealth have it because they have worked hard, because they have been confident, they've been successful. There's a certain level of self-security. They are confident in their own ability. They're not necessarily desperate and they're not reliant on God to provide for them because they've, they think they can do it for themselves. They're bound to this world, entangled in it. Self-focused, self-sufficient, self-reliant. It's hard. It's hard for the rich to disentangle themselves and to realise their need and to let go of it. They normally are the people who lead, not follow. They're the people who rule, not submit or serve one another. 
They're the ones who are in charge, who are in control. So it's hard for them to humble themselves and to come. And Jesus, remember, said this about a very religious man. And the Jewish people and the disciples, they believed that if you were wealthy, that was an indication that God liked you, that God blessed you. Deuteronomy 8, in fact, says that. When you go into the land, don't forget, when you get all of this abundance and wealth and houses and crops and everything else, don't forget to give thanks to the Lord your God. Verse 18, and don't forget that it's the Lord your God who gives you the ability to make wealth. They believed if you're wealthy, it's because God gave it to you. Remember Job? He was wealthy. Remember he got sick? Had three friends come? What did they think? Well, you're wealthy because you please God, but you're sick because you've done something wrong. That's why you're sick. It's a very kismet-type world, isn't it, of cause and effect. Well, that's what these people believe the same. Jesus says it's hard for the rich people to get into heaven. They're shocked. What? How could it be hard for the rich people? It's easy for them because rich people can buy the sacrifices. Rich people can pave their own way. They're rich because God has blessed them. If it's hard for them, how much harder is it going to be for other people who are not rich? Which is where they go with their question. Here is a, a wealthy, religious, healthy man who should have easily been able to enter the kingdom, but he didn't. And he knew it in his own heart he was lacking. Um, let me just give you this by way of historical background. The rabbis taught... That if you give alms, you purchased your redemption. Remember the Catholic Church and the indulgences and back in the Reformation? You put a coin into the offering box and a soul will fly free from purgatory. That's a good fundraising strategy. That's what it was. They tried to have a theological basis. It comes out of the Apocrypha and it comes out of this prosperity Judaism, you, you could call it. Here is another quote um, from the book of Tobit. If you give alms, it will deliver you from death and it will wash away your sins. Want to get rid of your sins? Give money. In Sirach, alms atoned for sin. The Talmud, the Jewish books, commentary, says alms are better than all other offerings and it means you have kept the whole law and giving alms means you will deliver you will deliver you from hell and make you perfectly righteous. How about that? That's their worldview. That's what they believed. If you're wealthy, it's because God loves you and has blessed you. If you give alms, if you give money, you are saved. It's hard for the rich people to get to heaven. What? It should be easy for them. And Jesus then goes on, he has to correct all of this. Jesus looked around again and he says to them, how hard for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. So he said, again, little children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. There's a slight textual variation which you'll have in the footnote of your Bibles. But the way the NIV has got it, I think is the best way. Jesus just says point blank, it's not easy to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's not easy to be saved. It's not easy to repent and to believe and to trust. It's hard. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
What does Jesus mean? It's a very common saying back in that world. It's a weird, stupid, not stupid. It's a weird analogy. But it's a very common Jewish way of saying, Middle Eastern, in fact, way of saying, it's impossible. It can't be done. Pull yourself up by your own bootlaces. It can't be done. This is a very common illustration. Many commentators and, and preachers down through the years have tried to explain and soften what Jesus was saying. Jesus meant a camel going through the eye of a needle. Well, that's silly, yet can't be done. That's the point. It can't be done. The camel was the biggest animal in Palestine. The elephant was the biggest one in the Middle East. In other countries, they have the saying, it's, it's, it's like an elephant going through the eye of a needle instead of a camel. Another country has a golden palm tree going through the eye of a needle. They took some large object and it can't go through the eye of a needle, therefore it's impossible. It's not, you probably have heard the explanation about within the gates of Jerusalem there is a little gate, it's called the needle gate and the camel has to take everything off and get down on its knees and crawl through. It has to humble itself and remove all things and then it can get in. That's very creative but not true. There's no evidence for it, there's no evidence for the little gate. Other people have come up, they've looked at the Greek text, and they've said, well, if you just change one little letter, the word changes from being a camel to being a cable. Just as it's hard to get a cable through the eye of a needle. Well, that's a little bit more realistic, I guess, but that's not what the Greek text says. It's camel. I mean, if you get the head through, that's okay, but you'll never get the hump through, will you? <laughs> See, that's the point. It's impossible. It's their, it's their funny way of saying it's impossible, it can't happen. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's hard to enter the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's tough. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 will talk about not many of you were rich when you came to Jesus. And it's still the case today. The vast majority of people who follow Jesus are not in the wealthy class. And if you are, then you have been not only blessed with salvation, but you've been given an awesome responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. To be a millionaire is to be, have an incredibly great responsibility. That's what Jesus is saying. If the rich can't, then who can? Jesus' point, no one can. <coughs> Verse 27, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, that's impossible. Who can be saved? You can't save yourself. It's impossible. But the good news is, with God, all things are possible. God can. See, we often get told these days, don't we, that we can do lots of things ourselves. You can be whatever you want to be. It's not true. You can't be whatever you want to be. We, are, we have limitations, limitations of talent, limitations of resources, limitations of time. We just can't do whatever we want. God can. We can't. You can't lick your elbow, can you? Pro. Can't do it. You can't do all things. And other silly illustrations like that. There are lots of things that we can't do. What Jesus is saying is... For people to be saved, God has to do something. A sinner 
by their own power, by their own will, by their own money or religion or morality, by their own good works, cannot save themselves. They can't enter the kingdom of heaven and inherit eternal life based upon what they do. Ron was dead, I asked him a long time ago. When you die, will you go to heaven? Excuse me. Will you go to heaven? To which he said, yes. I said, why? He said, I keep the Ten Commandments and I try to do nice things to people. How do you get to heaven? By being good. None is good. No, not one. How do you get saved? You can't. You can't save yourself. But the good news is God can save you and he wants to. What do we have to do? Ask. You're drowning out at sea. What do you do? You raise your hand, which means help. That's all you have to do. Ask. Ask him to have mercy upon you. That's the Pharisee and the tax collector going up to the temple to pray. What does the tax collector pray? Seven words. Seven words I taught my dad. God be merciful to me sinner. God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what you have to do. You have to ask that salvation by grace. Earthly riches cannot buy spiritual riches. Earthly riches, if they are clung to, will make you spiritually bankrupt. Peter, listening to this, speaks up in verse 28. We've left everything to follow you. What you asked him to do, we did. In other words, what's in it for us? Is it worth it? We've done that. Are we going to lose out? To which Jesus gives this surprising and wonderful promise. Truly I tell you, no one, there is no exception to this, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel. Think of all the things that people have sacrificed in order to follow Jesus, to be obedient to him. And Jesus is saying, no one has made that sacrifice. No one has given up their career or their friends or their families. Some people get converted and their families have nothing more to do with them. No one who has done that for me and for the gospel will fail to receive, Mark expresses it, a hundred times as much in the present age. You'll be better off in this life and in the next life, you'll get eternal life. You'll receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields. What he's talking about is when you give up everything to follow him, he replaces what you lose with brothers and sisters in the kingdom, new relationships, new meaning and purpose in life, new gifts, new focus. You'll be better off than you would be in this life. The rich young ruler made the wrong choice. He wanted this life, not the next one. And Jesus is promising us that we will be better off. But also, please note, in verse 30, it goes along with a deal not only will you be better off, but along with persecutions. It's 
part of the package, along with persecution. You can't follow Jesus in this world and not be out of step with this world, which will then draw a response, a reaction, and sometimes that can be nasty. Some of our brothers and sisters in other countries of the world experience that right now. We don't tend to experience it, what I would call persecution, in this country. Not yet, but it's coming. We get difficulties, we get mocked and we get called names and you might get shunted out of something and you might get passed over at work for something. And we get hurt and upset about that, understand that. But nobody's putting a gun to our head, nobody's shooting our kids, nobody's doing all of that. But Jesus said, expect it, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. He finishes. What does that mean? It means that if you're first, you'll be last. And it means if you're last, you'll be first. Is that clarified for you? We'll all be the same. Everybody gets the same treatment. We're all saved by grace. We all get eternal life. If you're first in importance now, well then you'll be comparatively last because the people who are last and have nothing, well, they'll have everything then. So you've got everything and they'll have everything, so everybody has everything. We're equal. That's what he's saying. That's what he's meaning. Well, <clears throat> is it worth it to follow Jesus? Well, my answer is yes. What's yours? The rich young ruler didn't think so. He went for temporal satisfactions, worldly comforts, financial security, all of the things that God gave him. But he was more in love with the gifts than with the giver. God was not first in his life. He was religious, but he knew about God, but he didn't know God personally. Not God first. It was him first, me first. My comfort, my way, my agenda. What about you? Last week I spoke about how at the Lord's table, the Last Supper, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was leaning against Jesus' chest. He was leaning towards Jesus. Judas, whom Jesus deliberately placed beside him, was leaning away from Jesus. Which way are you leaning? Towards or away? Is Jesus Lord of your life? Is he Lord of all of your life? Because if he's not Lord of all, He's not Lord at all, every area. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word to us today. We are both very comfortably, materially and spiritually. You've bathed us this morning in the truth of this scripture. Thank you for it. Thank you for your truth, for the life we have in Jesus. Thank you for the reality that we experience that we can't save ourselves, but Jesus can and has. Lord, help us to understand and to enact that you have to be first before all else. May your Holy Spirit convict us of any areas that are not under his rulership. Lord, continue to do your work in each of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.